Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. This is episode number 82. Can you still make a good living in the outdoor industry with Jason Miller and John Brown? This is the Filming with Josh podcast brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Welcome back to the Filming with Josh podcast. If you're new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Here on the podcast, we talk about all things video from storyboarding and script writing to how to price your work. We even talk about contracts and conversations like today, whether or not you can make a good living in the outdoor industry. So thanks for listening into the podcast today. Also, if you are new, be sure to go to Facebook and join the Filming with Josh group. You can join that group by typing in the search bar on Facebook filming with Josh and ask her to join the group today. The filming with Josh group is a private group where you can learn all about video. If you join that group, we continue the conversations that we have on the podcast and you can also ask questions, post videos, ask for feedback and things of that nature. So we'd love to see you there. Again, that's the filming with Josh Facebook group on Facebook. Joining me today is Jason Miller and John Brown. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Josh. Josh. Hey, John. Good to be here. Yeah, Miller. I really, <laughs> I really appreciate you guys hopping on today, Jason. You and I have been friends for many years now. I don't even know how many years. Uh, and John, you and I, we're, we're just now getting acquainted, but I've heard a ton about you from Jason. So I basically know your whole life story, your address, your the social security number. <laughs> um, yeah. But what I want to do today is I want to I want you guys to tell us a little bit more about you, who you are, your background what you did in the outdoor industry. And then we're going to have a conversation that talks about, uh, can you still make a good living in the outdoor industry today? I know Jason and I have had many, many conversations about this, and I, I've been told that you guys have as well. So that's what I'm hoping to, to capture today. So let's kick it off by Jason. I want you to kind of start off by telling us who you are, uh, kind of where you live, and what your background is. Man, that's a lot. Uh, let's let's back up to the beginning, and I'll try to do the Cliff Notes version of, of this. Uh, but my name is Jason Miller, and I own a company called Raven Six Studios, and we've been in business for uh, I think I think twenty seven years, somewhere around there. It's been a long time. Um, but I live in uh, Madison, Mississippi, and um, I've I've owned my own business and done everything uh, by using just contractors in the business. I don't, I don't use any employees. And so uh, I started uh, a long time ago. Um, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing, and we lived on a lake. And you couldn't keep me off that lake or keep me out of the woods when I grew up. Um, it all started with my grandfather and my father, and spending all the time in the field with them, and them uh, just giving me the love of the outdoors. And it, it it set the hook so much so that that's all I did, even in my free time. You know, I was always in the field, just by myself um, as a kid you know, learning what's next to play with and which one's not to. And dad threatening me if I go to the uh, the lake and get dirty when I come back to go to church, he's going to give me a whipping. And sure enough, I always found a way to get dirty, even though if I didn't mean to. And so, uh, but uh, it was it was in my blood since day one. Um, you know, what got me into the outdoor industry is that I happened to live uh, on the street of another guy. His name was Scott Wiles, uh, who had a TV show called In Pursuit. And, uh, and, you know, I would always, you know, hear about his TV episodes and I would always watch them growing up. You got to remember when we grew up, uh, we didn't have ways to really watch outdoor shows on TV. We had to go to, to the video store and rent videos. 
Um, and so, um, you know, that's kind of where it started. I met Scott and uh, the very first hunt we went out to film was a squirrel hunt. Uh, we got back that night and uh, he looked at my footage and he goes, you're doing better than my 16 year videographer on your first day. Why don't you come work for me? And so, um, you know, I went home and talked to my dad and, and made that decision to take, to take the leap. Now where, you know, the spider web of life, as you look at what you've done over the years, you think to yourself, you know, certain things aren't going to end up, you know, working out later as far as what you do. For example, uh, you know, I was a band geek. I was in a marching band and uh, I never <laughs> thought that learning how to walk heel to toe while I was playing my trumpet or marching with drums would ever lead to something in uh, later life that I use every day in my career now. And that's when I run a camera. I always use that stupid marching band uh, <laughs> example because that's how I learned how to walk and learn how that's to hilarious. film where I don't bob the cameras. And so, uh, you know, to, to make a long story short, when I started working with Scott, um, you know, I was, I was hungry. Um, I wanted to live and eat and breathe hunting and fishing. And, uh, that's all I wanted to do. And so I never will forget, uh, you know, one day, uh, Scott got up to go to the bathroom and he came back and I was sitting in his chair at the edit, at the edit bay. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm editing your show. And he goes, well, you don't know how to do that. And I said, man, I've been watching your keystrokes over your shoulder every day i said yeah i do you know i've been absorbing what you've been doing and sure enough you know I, that's what i started doing that's how i learned how to edit and then he taught me how to do music composition and uh obviously you know being a, a drummer and and doing stuff in the band that that also ended up paying off big time there is learning how to do that um so within six months he went to tnn and got a show on um uh on the show called everything outdoors with byron ferguson and so that left me wide open to be the host of the outdoor TV show in pursuit. And so then I started hosting the show. And so, you know, in a short time frame, I learned how to run camera. I learned how to edit, learned how to do uh, the script writing. He was an outdoor writer that taught me how to do that. Um, and then uh, uh, started doing every aspect of outdoor TV production. And then this is what I recommend to anybody that's wanting to do this is that, you know, if you just focus on a camera, camera work, you're, you're only going to limit yourself at how far you go in the industry. Um, the reason why we have been so successful at what we do is because I look at every spoke in the wheel to make everything I do on every end better. So if you're an editor, you know how to be a better videographer. If you know how to script right, you know how to, um, to lead your host that's in front of the camera on what to say, what not to say how to use inflections, um, you know, so you're putting all that stuff together on all sides of the fence when you're in the field. And so, um, you know, from that, from that day, from doing my own TV show and then, um, you know, we started doing ESPN Saturday morning TV shows. Um, and so that's where things really took, uh, took off is because we were just so busy traveling all over the world, hunting everything that you can hunt. And it was on ESPN Saturday mornings. And so that was, that was really when I got that job, I was just beside myself because I was in the field doing what I love to do. I never will forget. I was in Kona, Hawaii, and I was sitting on the bow of a boat. And we were uh, filming humpback whales. And uh, I just remember at that moment that life was perfect, you know, because I was doing what I was meant to do in life. And, and uh, you know, I tell you what, I learned a lot. I've learned uh, a lot of things of what not to do because, you know, the networks have such strict rules on what you can and can't do that uh, you have to have that production bible on your 
you know, if you want to call it that, so to speak, on your on your desk as you're editing, so you, that you stay compliant, that you don't have to do a lot of work over. Um, and so, uh, you know, from that from that day of starting in the field as a cameraman, 27 something years later, you know, I've created over 50 original TV series uh, that ranged anywhere from Outdoor Channel, Sportsman's Channel, ESPN, NBC Sports. And then uh, have filmed for just about every um, show out there um, that, you know, I look at keeping the money wheel going. So if you're not editing, you need to be shooting. If you're not shooting, you need to be doing graphics. Um, so I look at the business and how successful I've become is because I'm looking at keeping busy year round. And so, uh, you know, we created Whitetail Freaks and I won Best Overall Production uh, for that show the first year out of the gate and beat 451 other shows for that title. And so, you know, that was the, that was the pinnacle of my career right there is that when I won that award, I realized I had, I had done everything that I can ever dream of doing in the outdoor industry. Um, and then as, as we started maturing, what we started seeing was, uh, you know, as the pricing stays the same to travel the world, FedEx, camera gear, um, airline tickets, um, hotels, all that stays the same. But what kept going down was our pricing to do what we do. And so, you know, after after hitting hitting that ceiling and and then seeing pricing go down, you know, as a businessman, you just have to make smart decisions that uh, you got to keep keep the keep the wheel going. And if and if you're not making the money in one direction, you need to start looking in another direction, like more mainstream in, uh, media or video work or corporate campaigns or graphics or photography that uh, helps pick up that pace because, uh, you know, when I look, look back now, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a good ride and I've had lots of great fun, which, which is how I met John and, and I'll let John take it off from here because I can talk all day long about what we've done in the industry. But one thing that I love about John Brown is that uh, we have worked on a lot of productions together and, there's a lot of shows out there that want to do the best work and they say that they want to do the best work. But when, you, when it comes down to, you know, the rubber meeting the road, when you get out in the field and you start getting in hunting mode, a lot of those guys lose that uh, passion to do the work. And so I never forget one time I was walking across this, a stream. We were chasing bears in British Columbia and the host I was filming said, Jason, we're only doing this cutaway once. And I just said, well, it's your show. If I bobble the camera, then, It'll, you know, you it'll be what it's going to be. And that's where I started getting PTSD on on uh, how far you can go with this, because, you know, my my big background of who I wanted to be was Nat Geo and Discovery. And when you watch those programs, you never see a camera bobble ever. Their footage is perfect. You never see any kind of tweaks. And so that's where I wanted to go. And so I was a perfectionist and I would make a, a lot of people work their butts off to uh, make sure we got that kind of quality in the field and that's where John Brown came into my life is that when we got into the field together uh, he and I just we knew what we needed to do we knew the style that we needed to get it in and um, and we both worked hard to do it and, and our success in those shows with uh, NWTF and all the other TV shows we've done is, has shown because the awards that are sitting behind me on the desk uh, you know they don't pay the bills but they sure are nice to look at <laughs> Man, that was a great introduction. I, I think we should just end the podcast there personally. Um, <laughs> John, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, and what your background is? 
Um, I was born in, and raised in northeast Louisiana uh, in, a, in a small farming community. Uh, same kind of deal. Grandparents hunted quite a bit. Uh, my father was in the music business in Nashville, uh, so he was not home a lot. Uh, so my grandparents were who did the brunt of taking me hunting and fishing and introducing me to the outdoors. Um, I, uh, always had a love of storytelling. I love to read stories. I, I love to hear the stories being told by the old guys at the camp when they would come in in the morning. I, as, even as a child, I would hear those stories and I, I wanted to be a storyteller. That's really how and why I got into this business. Uh, of course, I followed a natural progression. I, I discovered the great outdoor writers. Uh, just was a voracious reader as a as a young young person. And then I took a I took a photography class through 4-H when I was in junior high, which led to becoming the yearbook photographer in high school. And uh, very similar to Jason, uh, I had a music background. Um, of course, with my with my father being in the business, uh, but when I was in college, and really before that, you know, in the eighties, uh, the only thing that you could find uh, for outdoor content, really video wise, was you rented videos. There was no TV shows and nobody had a DVD player. There was no DVDs. And so you went to the video store and, and most of those videos were produced by Primos, uh, especially in my neck of the woods and Jason, where he lives. Uh, you watched those. Uh, and I, I just became enamored with watching those hunts. I love the camaraderie. I love the stories that Will told. I loved Will's you know, just the way he spoke and talked about hunting and, and how, what it meant to him and conservation. And I was approached in the late 80s by the NBC affiliate here in Monroe, Louisiana, which, by the way, I now live in West Monroe, Louisiana, uh, home of the duck commander, uh, Phil Robertson. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, I was approached about doing um, – a Friday morning segment on hunting and fishing uh, here where I would just talk about, you know, where the fish were biting, what they were biting, what was going on with the hunting, you know, and, and then eventually I had guests on that talked about this stuff. And that five minute segment turned into a, a 30 minute show on this local network. And I did that for about three years. I got an offer to uh, moved to Minneapolis and co go to work for the North American Hunting Club. And when I got there, they sent me to uh, Sony Shooter School. They sent me to Avid School. And at a very young age, I was sitting in Bristol, Connecticut with real storytellers. And, you know, Jason has, has that same background with dealing with ESPN outdoors. And they were very strict about how you could do things and the story was the most important thing. The kill was secondary and they taught, taught us how to shoot two angles of cutaways and all those things. And I was there about two years. And of course, being from the deep South, it was, it, it was tough. I was married. I had a, 
Uh, we had a young child, was not used to the snow and the ice and the cold. Uh, but in, uh, I would say, 96, I got offered a job by a, a company called West Bank. A catalog company that, that sold fly fishing gear. And they offered to allow me to move back home. They bought all the gear. They set me up. And then we set out and traveled all over North America, the Bahamas, just shooting fly fishing videos. I spent a summer in Yellowstone just shooting fly fishing videos. And uh, I produced those. And what they were going to do is they were going to try to follow the model that North American Hunting Club had set. And that was they had done a version of the Time Life book series where you get a video every month. Whether you buy it or not, it comes to the house. If you don't want it, you leave it in the mailbox. It goes back. If you do want it, you pay for it. Uh, we did that for about two years. And it didn't pan out for them. Uh, so I had to start freelancing. And so I would freelance from Mossy Oak. I would drive to West Point, Mississippi. I would edit for them about you know four days a week, stay there, then come home for three days. I uh, did the same thing for Primos when they went to Avid the first time. Uh, Will called and asked me to come uh, teach his guys how to run Avid and the ins and outs. So I wound up doing uh, some freelance production for them as well. I uh, also did quite a bit of field production for Realtree, Mossy Oak, uh, Night and Hail. I did quite a bit of work for Night and Hail. Uh, and several other game call companies, camo companies. Uh, but in 1998, I was at the SHOT Show, and I ran into a guy by the name of Jay Langston, who is an outdoor writer, lives in Tennessee now. At the time, he was the editor of Turkey Call Magazine. He said, we're looking for an associate producer at NWTF. I'd love for you to take the job. That Later that spring, they had me go do a a freelance job for them. So they were able to see my field production. Uh, in the fall of that year, they called me to fly to South Carolina where the NWTF is headquartered. I interviewed, I was offered the job and uh, we moved there, which Edgefield is about 20 minutes north of Augusta, Georgia. And so those small community and it was a fantastic place to raise a family. And so when I took that job at NWTF, we were doing 13 original shows a year on what was called the Nashville Network, TNN. In those days, there was only two avenues for outdoor television, ESPN Outdoors and TNN. Uh, they were the two main players. Um, in 2005, uh, when I stepped off of Johnny Morris's private jet, June the 5th of 2005, we had gone from doing 13 original shows to 72 original shows under three titles with the same four people in the studio. And the quality of the production had diminished to a point that it was concerning to me as a 35, 36 year old who still wanted to work another 30 years in this business. Uh, we had been just our backs had been put to the wall, so to speak. And Jason will tell you about network deadlines are not like online deadlines. This is not like a YouTube channel 
or on the internet when when QC or quality control expects that show to be there on a date and it's not there, your inbox starts filling up and telephone calls start being made. And in those days on TNN, for example, we were selling one sponsorship for $150,000. We had 10 sponsors on the show at $150,000 each and the annual budget in the department was a million dollars. So I basically went to my boss and I said, I, I can't do this. We were, there were three of us with cameras. We were killing a hundred turkeys a year. <laughs> now you do the math on that. And uh, we would leave home the last week of February and we would hunt all the way until the first week of June. And we'd finish up in the Sierra Madres of Mexico. And so I left from NWTF as an associate producer. I took a job with a, a company called Boss Outdoor Productions that was doing the production for NRA. We did American Hunter, American Rifleman. We did uh, commercial work for Nikon and Mercury Marine. I did that for about five years. And then I was asked to come back to NWTF as the executive producer. So I went back and that's really where Jason and I really started to work together. We had known one another before that, but that's when I started to use him as a freelance guy, as a field production guy. And that's really when, in my opinion, those, those 10 years there, nine years really with Jason were the best, were the best TV shows that I ever edited and put together because Jason was doing the field production on them. And uh, just a quick story. I, I remember the first time I sent him out and two weeks after the job, I got a drive with over 3000 still photos on it and two and a half terabytes of video. And nobody had ever sent me anything remotely close to that type of media for doing a job. Was he expensive? Yeah, he was expensive. He was probably the most expensive guy in the business, but it was worth it. And it made such a difference. I was there until 2019. Uh, by then, my children had all graduated from high school. They had moved on. Uh, I went through a, a divorce. I'd, I was married for 23 years. And I, we, after the divorce, it became apparent to me that I was ready to move home. I had spent most of my life my adult life away from home and Northeast Louisiana is a very small, close knit community. And I missed those people tremendously. And I missed being on the Tinsall river uh, where I grew up hunting. And so I went into my boss's office in August of 2019. And by then the budget was a pittance of what it was when I arrived there in 2000, it, it was, it, it was nothing. It was me. And I had a part, I had one other guy that worked part-time with me. He didn't even come into the office. And I asked him, I said, look, if you're at a point where budget-wise you're in, look, I'll take retirement. I'll walk away. And he said, nope. He said, we've already done the budget for this year. We're going to roll straight ahead and keep going. Excuse me. 60 days later, he called me back to his office and they fired me. So things change. Uh, that was the COVID year coming up. 
And I actually went to Illinois and did some farming with a friend of mine, helped him out. And then I got a call from Tack Robinson, who was the uh, vice president of a, a company called Confluence that owned uh, Honey Break Lodge in Louisiana. And basically, they were just a social media company that helped uh, companies like Federal. We worked with Federal, Realtree, uh, Steel, uh, different uh, Polaris, companies like that, that we did photography and video for. But anyway, uh, just about two weeks ago, they shut down the entire side, the video side of that operation. And so I uh, jokingly said, told Jason that I have retired, but I have officially retired, which is interesting that I wasn't aware that the topic today was going to be, can you still make a living in the outdoor <laughs> industry? For me, could I make a living in it? Yeah. It's just based on the fact that I've got a black book full of people that I know and can call and say, if I wanted to go do field production, I could continue to do field production or I could do editing at home. But my heart is not in it any longer because of the way the business has changed. Storytelling is not of a premium anymore. You cannot tell a good story in three minutes or less. It, it just doesn't happen. I'm sorry. Uh, so aside from the financial aspect of it, it was really the, the way the business changed is what played the biggest <clears throat> role in my decision to say three decades, tremendously blessed, so fortunate to have been able to raise three children uh, and, and, and make my living solely 100% out of this industry. And I'm going to tell you, there's not more than about 10 guys walking right now that are still alive, probably, that can make that claim that came up the way Jason and I did, always behind the camera, that, that can say, we made our livings for 30 years solely in the hunting industry, behind a camera, or sitting behind an editing desk, you know, so... That's about uh, as quickly as I can put it all together for you. <laughs> no, man, that was that's some awesome information. I think I think you touched on a lot of things. So I want to touch on one 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 aspect you brought up before we get into the living thing. But you mentioned how storytelling has dropped off, and I want you guys to give give me your thoughts on this. But I have a few a few reasons why I think that is. One is obviously people's attention in general has changed. I mean, people are watching videos on TikTok that are 30 seconds to 60 seconds long, and the expectation of of videos is that they're going to get shorter, 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 shorter. And as you said, it's really hard in three minutes or less to tell a story, if not impossible. Number two is you mentioned that you went to a Sony school and a uh, editing school to kind of learn a, a lot. And you said that you were around some real storytellers. Jason also um, talked about how he had some opportunity to learn from people about storytelling. Um, and specifically, he mentioned that the person he first worked with uh, was a, a writer, which I think goes a long way in kind of giving you a, that thought process of storytelling. I think today it is so easy to buy a camera and 
say that you film outdoor stuff and have no education, like you guys, some of you guys have either formal education or education through experience. I think with that lack of education and just going out and buying a camera and making quick TikTok videos, the art of storytelling has completely been lost, uh, especially in the outdoor industry for the most part. What are your thoughts there? No, I, I, I'll step in and answer that. Um, because we were back in the days that we had so many um, rules of what we could do with every segment, um, ESPN definitely made us tell the story uh, from start to finish. Um, but we also had handcuffs on us about what we could and couldn't show and the quality of what we were filming in our cutaways. And so I think, uh, I think looking back in those early days that um, that's what dramatically helped me as I, as I started taking on more TV shows and more clients were calling me about producing new shows is that, uh, is that we had that ESPN background that helped us so much. And so, you know, last night I was on Facebook or, and I live on YouTube. Um, all the videos that you watch are seriously, they're quick. Um, you know, I, I love scuba diving and I love spearfishing and a lot of those didn't have any storytelling in it. It was just straight up just showing spear spearfishing. Uh, no cutaways. I mean, it's just a GoPro. Um, unfortunately, when I go out and do my own stuff, I can't do it that way. I just can't. I, I have to take all the multiple cameras and and learn how to do photography and learn how to get those cutaway shots. And, you know, because I still, in my mind's eye, even all these years later, um, I still want to produce. And, and even when I do videos, it's going to take me a while to do it because I'm still at that that thinking in my mind. It's it's really hard to sit back and think, hey, John and I are going to go turkey on this weekend and we're not going to take a camera. I just, I feel so uncomfortable doing that. I just don't know that um, I'll fully be able to get there and enjoy it as much as I used to. But um, but that storytelling side of things is a, is a must. And especially in how you film your cutaways and making sure you have your camera right or your lighting right. And uh, your focus and have the audio right. Um, I don't think there's such a need for that from what I'm seeing on YouTube today. Now, when I say I'm on YouTube all the time, I'm I'm not really watching hunting stuff, hunting shows or anything like that. I'm basically, if there's something I want to learn and how to, um, how, I, how I learn how to do audio or how I'm learning how to do graphics or music composition or a new piece of gear, you know, I'm thinking about switching from Avid Media Composer to da Vinci. And so I've been doing a ton of research on people that are putting out um, how-to videos, but those are in informative videos and they're well lit and they're well shot and they're being paid sponsor dollars. And so, um, you know, John was always there too on, on the, on the storytelling side of things, you know, the, the cameras have always gotten smaller. You know, we started back in the days of DigiBeta and tube cameras um, and even John, I remember John telling stories about carrying a, a VHS, VHS camera with a VHS deck that you had to put around your, your shoulder like a briefcase. Yeah. Um, and so I look at where they are now. They're definitely cheaper and, and more portable, but the principles behind it are still there, in my opinion, that you need to know what you're doing to be successful. What do you think about that, John? Well, uh, the storytelling, well, you know, just sitting here, I made a note. One of the reasons that we uh, were able to get shows to 21 minutes and 30 seconds, which was the standard, you know, on a 30-minute show is what they 
asked you, you know, for content was so much of what we did, whether it was, uh, you know, ESPN, whether it was TNN, whether it was NWTF or uh, Tom Miranda's show or any of the shows that Jason or I worked on, so much of it was educationally driven. You have to remember, this was a time before you could take your phone out and go and Google, how do you call a turkey? How do you set up for a whitetail? How's the best way to conceal yourself? So much of it was educationally driven. We were teaching an entire generation how to hunt and fish. Um, and uh, funny story is I would hunt with these guys that would win the NWTS Grand National Turkey Calling Championship. And they would be fantastic turkey hunters, uh, turkey callers, excuse me. But early on, they were terrible hunters <laughs> because they came from states where they just didn't, there, there wasn't a lot of turkey hunting. Uh, you know, for example, in the South, Arkansas and Alabama have had two of the longest running turkey seasons probably in the nation. But if you, you look at Pennsylvania or Ohio or those New York states like that, there are great turkey hunters there and they have a wonderful hunting tradition. But a lot of those guys were still learning how to turkey hunt at the time. Fantastic callers, but still learning their way around the woods. But as far as the storytelling, um, even if we were, you know, it was educationally slanted, we still wanted to pick a good story. Now, at the NWTF, it was always going to be a story about a volunteer, someone who had gone above and beyond for the wild turkey or for the organization. And then, you know, Jason will tell you, you were going to have your athletes. At that period of time, every pro athlete and every country music singer wanted to be in front of a camera to show, you know, that they were, I guess, quote unquote, legit. Well, those were great stories because, you know, most people were interested in that. And they had they had an interesting take where they came from, how they made it and all that. Um, so the story, the storytelling was important. And the educational side of it was important. And those two things combined to really give you some good content, you know, meaty content that viewers could consume. So, yeah, that's that's great information. So to, when you look at it today, <clears throat> both you guys, and it doesn't matter to me which one answers this, when you look at it today, what do you like the difference between what you used to see and what you see now? Like, what are you seeing now beyond just the quick videos? I mean, Jason mentioned not a lot of cutaways, real short, some of it's GoPro stuff, but like, what else are you seeing today that you feel is drastically different from the content that you guys were producing? Well, I, very quickly, I'll give you a great example of uh, working for Confluence. Uh, the last two years, we were doing a uh, YouTube series at a uh, pay for hunt operation at West Point, Mississippi. And the centerpiece of the show was an older gentleman who owned the operation, who had hunted quail there as a young boy, then lost all the quail and then rededicated himself and his operation to wild covey populations, had spent a ton of money with Mississippi State University uh, hosted biologists, hosted quail forever, did everything. And so 
I'm in the process of telling this story, which is a long-term deal. I'm doing 12 episodes a season. And I'm starting from scratch. I'm going all the way back to this guy as a child and his memories of hunting quail with his favorite dog when he would get off the school bus in the afternoon, you know. About halfway through the second season, it became apparent that these people were not satisfied with the production and how it was going. And so they hired a second company to come in and this guy came in you know i'm always old guy in the room he's very young but he's shooting red and he did his thing and 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 i watched him and then they released several short segments so this is what i see you go buy a red you set it to slow motion and you shoot everything in (laughs) slow motion And then you go back and you edit the soundtrack. There's nobody talking other than little sound bites like, great shot. Oh, this is beautiful. Man, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. All right. And then you edit all that. It's all slow. And then you have access to this music library, orchestral music. It's in a minor key. It's beautiful. They put it in there. They roll some scenics in there. And, and that's what I see more than anything else. That are the fast-paced, everything just bam, 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 with very little sound bites, very little story underneath it. Like we've been talking about, uh, it's almost like the viewing public doesn't have the ability to spend more than three minutes looking at something, you know, <clears throat> anymore. So those are the two type things that I see now. And it's like, And look, I can't fault that because Jason will tell you the same thing. When we got in the business, there were individuals that we wanted to emulate. Shooting and editing is a style of art that is no different than music. Okay, so I grew up listening to Steely Dan. I always wanted to be Donald Fagan. I wanted to, man, I love that kind of music. If I was a musician, that's the kind of music I would write. Shooting and editing is the same way. You watch these people that you consider to be your mentors and you emulate them. That's no different than what these guys are doing today. Someone inspired them and they're they're now emulating that style of video. So I think it's just constantly changing. You know, it's it's ever evolving and it's never going to stay stagnant and Even as I sit here today getting out of the business, I can honestly say that's one of the great things about the business is that it is continually evolving. Jason, thoughts? Yeah, I agree with that. Here's here's another way to take it even further is that, uh, you know, when I look back at the TV model, um, you know, we had 21, 30, 22 minutes and 30 seconds to tell our story. But it was also mixed with a bunch of advertisements within the TV show that, you know, somebody was standing in front of the camera going, hey, if it wasn't for this Matthews bow and this XX78 arrow, I wouldn't have shot this this big buck. And so I noticed that uh, probably about the time that we were topping our careers is that a lot of that advertisement that we were having to sell to our sponsors just to pay the bills was getting out of control. 
I mean, it really was because not only did you have a show open for 30 seconds to a minute, then you had billboards at uh, the end of first segment and the beginning of fourth segment. But then you had to promise, you know, your, your sponsors that you were going to do a product shot or a product segment within the show. And then there had to be, um, you know, some kind of lower thirds in the show that was saying what they were using in the equipment list. And so a lot of what I heard later in my career was that people were getting turned off by it. They would go watch a TV show to watch hunting. They weren't watching because who had the best bow. And so what I love about YouTube is that you don't see a lot of that anymore. You don't have standards and time limits to how quick or how short that you can do your content in. Uh, and I like that because it kind of takes off the handcuffs that the networks would do to you. Uh, totally agree. And this is another thing. That, yeah, it, you know, here's another thing. I think that this is what the networks kind of shot themselves in the foot with is that, you know, we would be in a recession and then the, the networks would actually say, <clears throat> oh man, we're charging the highest rates we've ever charged. And, and I can't believe how many producers I would talk to and they're like, well, how are we going to make this year? Because obviously, you know, everything that we got to pay for hasn't changed. It's gone up in price. But the people that end up taking it in the shorts were the producers because those were the only ones that you could actually nickel and dime them down from a normal day rate. And so that's where I actually promote YouTube over the networks now is because if I was the business and I was selling – a bow, who do I want to pay? Do I want to pay the networks that are going to show my show three times a week? And two of those air times might be at two o'clock in the morning when nobody's watching TV. And, you know, if you're not there, you're not going to see the show. Well, guess what? On YouTube, your content lives 24 seven and anybody can watch it anytime they want by just Google searching it. And so if I was a, if I was a sponsor, that's where I put my money is that I want my content to live 24-7. And I want the the not hard sell that, you know, that you don't have to shove, you know, the Ted Nugent style in your face. That, and I love Ted Nugent, by the way, no offense toward him. Um, but that style where he'd say, oh, if it wasn't for this Matthews bow and XX78 arrow and this Thunderhead, I wouldn't have shot this buck. Um, so that's where I've seen things change as far as going to, to YouTube. Now, here's the the side that John and I have seen from where we have, you know, $250,000 worth of vetted gear and my server that's sitting right in front of me cost me $48,000, um, you know, and all the big cameras and everything that we would spend to do our TV shows has gone down considerably. Now editors can do this on a laptop with a uh, minimal expense. Um, you know, the decisions on buying a camera, everybody wants a red, but is that the smart decision to buy a red? Because if the network's not airing in 8K, then what's the point in going to film it? Now, you can always dub that down. So there's always a way to say that, well, you can still make it 1080 or whatever the network wants. But the whole point of what I'm saying is that sometimes you got to make the, the smart decision on your workflow and your gear based on what you're using in the field. Because I remember in the days when we wanted to take every slider out there and every time-lapse dolly and um, every lens and every camera, um, you know, and and try to do all this stuff in a 16 to 20 hour filming day. Um, so now you can get by with minimal gear. But the whole point of what 
we're looking at uh, coming full bore around is that you still have to have the talent to know how to work that camera, to know how to get the audio, uh, to know how to do more than just a slow motion for the whole eight minutes or six minutes that you're doing your show. And that's where I think uh, things have changed. But, you know, is it a deal breaker now? I don't, I don't think so. I still watch what I watch, but a lot of the shows that I do watch are informative based on, you know, I, I want a new, you know, travel camper. And so I watch these people talk, but they're talking in detail. They're not just doing slow motion cutaways. And so uh, that's where I've seen things change now, you know, and this is where I'll take this, that what I've seen change is not necessarily for the better in how that they pay people that do this job because when John and I started doing this job and John mentioned all the, the other shows with Bass Pro Shop, even my days back in ESPN, when we had our hair on fire and we were working, we were working 16, 20 hour days. And, and I'll tell you this, all honesty with uh, what I did at ESPN, you know, I thought the harder you worked and the more you proved to people that you work with, that you're a hard worker, it would get you farther in life. And that's not always the case. Um, I would stay awake for three days straight editing our ESPN shows. I'd sleep for about six to eight hours. And then I would stay awake for three days straight again and ship that show to the network because I could not afford to have that show not meet the deadlines. Um, now, I thought I was doing it to prove that I was dedicated and I wanted to learn. What I didn't understand is that how much damage I was doing to my short-term memory because your body is just like a computer. you got to shut it down. So if there's one thing I could redo, I definitely wouldn't do that because I'm paying the price now that sometimes I walk downstairs to get coffee and I don't remember what I walked downstairs for, or that could be age. Um, so, you know, looking back and seeing the hours that we worked that we just did what we needed to do to get ahead and to get our name out there and for people to know, Hey, when they hear, you know, your name, that there's a quality that stands behind it. Um, so I think that that's, I think the quality and how people do things today is still there um, as far as what they want to be known for. I just think it's just done on a, a much lower level. And, you know, when it comes to money and paying your bills, this is where my heart breaks for a lot of people in the outdoor industry today because they're just getting robbed on what they should be making because of the hours they put in in the field. So let's talk about that. <clears throat> the industry has changed a lot, in my opinion. Um, I've seen, I've been, I left the outdoor TV side of the business back in spring of 2016. So I left seven years ago because I saw how much it was changing and how day rates and things are going way down. The expectations to me have grown. Like both of you guys have mentioned incidents or uh, like cases of red, for example, which is a very expensive camera. So expectations have grown. Like you're going to bring these cameras, you're going to produce all this slow motion and stuff, but the budgets have gone down. And what's really funny to me is I do a lot of work today in the commercial world and I make anywhere from three times to six times what I ever made in the outdoor industry on my day rates. I mean, the commercial industry pays way better. But the only industry I've ever worked in that has ever asked me to bring a red camera has been the hunting industry, which is so funny because it's also the cheapest industry I've ever worked in. But like, let's talk about that, how expectations are, are growing. Like everyone expects you to bring these large sensor, interchangeable lens cameras today, film slow motion, do all these things. But 
the budgets have gone down. And that is why I feel this conversation of can you make a good living still today in the outdoor industry? That's why I feel it's a really, really relevant conversation. So you guys chime in on that. Let me know. Well, uh, well, Jason, Jason alluded to one thing and that you can look, you can take the red and you can show up with the interchangeable lenses and you can have all the equipment in the world. But if you don't have the background mm -hmm. on how to operate that unit, uh, um, it's, it's not going to it's not going to work for you. I, I, I'm sorry. You know. Jason and I have had this this one conversation so often that I honestly can have this, um, you know, have this without notes or anything. By the way, <laughs> I have a book that's at the editor right now, and the book is about my time in this industry. And so one of the chapters it discusses what I consider, you know, the downfall of Rome, and that was the initially the affordability of equipment it became very affordable and it became so affordable that guys who had nine to five jobs and i could start naming these guys that had shows on the outdoor channel there was there was one in particular who was a lance cracker distributor in charlotte north carolina he had a he and a partner had a show on the outdoor channel now monday through friday this guy worked in his business but on saturdays and sundays he produced outdoor television and he was able to do it were the shows good i never did think so again i'm looking at storytelling there wasn't a lot of great you know storytelling there uh for that the other thing that changed was the pool was very shallow. It was very limited as to the number of people that did what we did. My father, I alluded to early, was a musician in Nashville. He worked for Dolly Parton. He worked for Loretta Lynn for 15 years. Um, I was aware at a very young age that he was a part of a very finite group of individuals that were fortunate enough to do that for a living. So when I got into this business, it was astounding to me that I had joined an industry and was making a living in a group that was even smaller than the one he had come from. And one of the great things about the industry being so small is that there were what I called gatekeepers. I became a gatekeeper eventually. Miller became a gatekeeper. If you didn't meet the criteria to do this job, you didn't make it in this job. And there were two there were two things that one of my mentors told me that I always expected of the next generation. One, you had to be an eternal optimist. You had to believe with every fiber in your being that the next call you made, a turkey was going to gobble, ducks were going to come. Are you going to rattle and a white-tailed deer was going to come walking up? And the other most more important, and that was you had to enjoy seeing other people be successful. Now, I can't tell you how many very talented people I saw come into this business and they didn't make it because they didn't enjoy seeing other people succeed. 
And when that rule went out, in my opinion, that's when our industry as a whole began to kind of sink right there. We were taken over by people who were so obsessed with being in front of the camera and being on television that the overall quality of the product began to decrease. And you can look at those individuals, the ones that wanted to be in front of the camera, those shows were never as good as the ones who had a producer who understood his role of being behind that camera, telling the story, showing people how to do it, and was more concerned about what the viewer was getting out of it versus seeing themselves, you know, in front of the camera. And so when all that began to happen and the cost of that equipment went down, everything changed at that point. Again, at NWTF, we went from a million dollar budget to a $250,000 a year budget. And $250,000 a year would barely pay the salaries of the individuals that were in that department at that time. Initially, the Beta SX camera we shot on, $32,000, $35,000 without the lens. You know, eight years later, we're, we're buying $5,000 Panasonic cameras shooting on tape, little mini, you know, mini tapes and stuff like that. Mm. So price changed on the equipment. And then more importantly, the ability to sell sponsors, sponsorships at a price <clears throat> that made it worthwhile is what went away. That, again, we charged $150,000 to be on TNN. By the time we got to the Outdoor Channel, that cost of that sponsorship was at $30,000. Now, granted, the airtime was not as much, but come on. Our lead-in, our lead-in for Turkey Call then was WWF Wrestling. There were a million people watching that show, a million people, when it hit. Now, the million didn't keep watching it, but by the <clears throat> end of that thing, we were still looking at Three or 400,000 people were watching a show at one time. And you went to the Outdoor Channel, those numbers were cut in half or maybe even less than that. So as far as making a living, I always approached the, the, the business. I was always a little scared. Jason, in my opinion, has always been the entrepreneur. He's been the guy that was willing to put his neck on the line. He's been the guy that was willing to say, I'll buy the equipment. All right. I'll spec it. We're going to make this work. I was always too scared to do that. I had three children. So I stayed. I was always looking for a company. So if you're talking about if you can still make a living doing this, I think you can still make a living doing it in the business. But you have to probably be associated with a company that has the ability and, you know, to give you the equipment, set you up, provide you with retirement benefits, health care, the things that I was personally looking for when I was working in the business. Yeah. So personally, what I've seen, and this is just my take on it. But I feel like, so you you talked about how equipment has gone down in price. So the barrier of entry has 
become way smaller. So it's way easier to go buy some cheap cameras. I mean, you can drop 10 grand and get like a halfway decent setup on cameras and lenses, a couple mics, that kind of thing. You can go on YouTube, teach yourself the basics on how to run a camera, and then you can put yourself out there as a field producer or whatever you want to call it. And so the barrier of entry has changed. And so that to me has made it to where there are a lot of young guys coming out of college. They want to get a job in the hunting industry because they love hunting or fishing. But then what ends up happening is, is they're willing to work for pennies on the dollar today. Like I'll work for a hundred dollars a day, $200 a day, $300 a day. I just want to get my foot in the door. I don't care. I want to do this for a living. But then five years into the into it, when they start growing and getting better, they hit that cap of like five hundred a day because it's hard to make it over that as a freelancer today because most shows don't want to pay more than that. Can you make more than that? Yes, very hard though. And so what ends up happening is they they start increasing and then they realize, oh, I can't go any higher than this. No one's going to pay me more than that. Well, then they meet a girl, they get married, they have kids, they need to pay for their own private health insurance, and they start realizing how expensive it is to make a living. And so it comes really hard. So like you said, you either have to go work for a company that can set you up for the retirement, provide the gear for you, that kind of thing, or you can't make it. And I kind of feel like that's what's happened today. And I feel like a lot of young guys that are getting into the industry don't realize that by agreeing to work at these cheaper rates, that they're actually shooting themselves in the foot in the long term, because the companies are getting used to paying these cheaper prices. They're never going to go back and pay higher prices, in my opinion. Yeah, that's right. You know, it, you know, as a business owner, you always start small, but you want to finish being extremely successful. And you want your you want your money and your pricing to grow as you grow. Um, I always say work smarter, not harder. Um, but you know, I was I was fortunate because of our background, we always chased the top ten shows. And the reason why I did that is because I knew that they had the money through their sponsors because who they were. You know, look mm -hmm. at Lee and Tiffany's today. They're still they're extremely successful, but when we started with them, they were they were just getting started. As a matter of fact, Lee was still an engineer, and and, and Tiffany was still a flight attendant at that time that we started all of their shows. And so I even saw then that where we were with our pricing, it was still on the higher end. But the way I would always tell anybody that's trying to compete against 451 other shows is that if you're not the top 10, you're not going to turn that sponsor's head at your show to give you money. And so, uh, you know, just too many other people are calling Realtree and Mossy Oak and Benelli and all the other people just like you are to try to, to make that paycheck. So, you know, the great thing about where John and I started is that we, we made great money and we did multiple productions to make even more money today. They're not making a third of what we made on a day rate, or they're not even making a third of what we did on the production rate. And so, you know, everybody starts young and they don't have any responsibilities other than buying their gear and they can travel as much as they want. I mean, you got to realize we would be on the road for eight plus months a year. Now it wouldn't be straight, but it would be seriously. Sometimes you'd come home and you'd have enough time to pack and do your laundry and you're leaving the next day to go to your next shoot. We did that because we didn't have responsibilities at home. So, you know, you got to strike when the iron's hot and you make more money while you're in the field or in the, in the production studio. But in today's age, 
when you start low, there's only so many hours in the day that you can work to make more money. And so that's where I'm seeing that things are, are going today is that, you know, they're, they're buying gear and they're only gone for so long and then they're freelancers and then they can't afford health insurance. And they definitely can't afford health insurance for the family or their kids once they have a kid. And then when you have a kid, then all of a sudden your bills start going up because now you got to start planning for college and just just paying for groceries every day. And I mean, my heart breaks for what's going on today because now gas is so high and just the cost of walking out your door is so expensive, even with food that, you know, I, I remember a show that we were producing. <clears throat> they got mad if we bought coffee at the 7-Eleven and, and we weren't hurting at all for money. And so if you think about today, I mean, it's just, it's going to get harder and harder for those people to keep climbing unless you take more shows. But when you take more shows, you're going to have to hire more help to, to help edit those shows and, and to, to get help in the field. And, and so that's where I see that, that things are going is that, um, you know, the quality is, is that's what's been my handicap where I don't hire employees is because I always want my quality to be the best that there, you know, there is. And today's, model isn't necessarily about the quality it's about the price tag and so yeah. they're trying to win the race with a, a volkswagen over a ferrari and in my opinion that's not a race you're going to win to get money if you're driving that volkswagen um can you pay your bills yeah but that doesn't mean that you're going to get across the finish line and keep growing as a business to be successful and so what i see with the the maturation of where guys are starting now and climbing is that um you know, once you hit that family, hit that family status and you start having real bills um, along with all your production bills and everything else, that there's only X amount of dollars that can come in to help support that family. And, and that's where my heart breaks for them is because um, that's where I see that they get their head on the ceiling and, and you have to make a decision to start looking at other other avenues to make more money. You know, there's uh, one other thing that I failed to mention that I saw taking place too, that was an indicator of where the industry was going to go was I went to a shot show in 07, 08, somewhere in there. And I was talking to this guy, he had a show on outdoor channel. And I asked him, I said, what are you getting for a sponsorship? He said, a product. Oh, and I said, yeah. <laughs> product. And he said, yeah, we just swap them product. They, you know, they give us product. And, and I said, how are you paying for the airtime? Oh, he said, I paid for it out of my pocket. The more I began to investigate, the more I began to see that these people were leveraging their children's college education to pay airtime to be on TV. They weren't even asking sponsors for money. Just load me up. Load me up with some guns or give me a, a Polaris or, you know, send me a few cases of camouflage. When I saw that happening, I knew that the days were numbered, that we were really seeing the downfall of the industry that that people like Jason and I had been a part for so long. And the sponsors, of course, you can't fault them. They were willing to say, gladly, we'll give you a commercial and you know, invite us to go hunting and we'll, we'll give you all the product you want uh, just to be a part of the show. 
And that was so far-fetched to me to think that somebody, I mean, just basic, what kind of business model is that? It, there, it is not one. It's, it's non-sustainable. And I think we saw, you know, the result of that uh, over time. It, it, it didn't work. Uh, but, but at one time, I, I remember uh, talking to sponsors and they're trying to talk to me about swapping product for And I'm, I, I can't make that deal. I, I can't, I can't do that. That's just another, another thing that, that I saw happening, you know, along the way. Yeah, I definitely think it's like a, uh, a culmination of things that has driven, um, the amount that you can expect to make today down. And that's why I feel like, and, and I've told Jason this before, I feel like there's really only two ways to make a good living. And, and, and let me be clear, there's a difference between making a living and making a good living. Making a living is like, you can be a young guy, single, living in an apartment, you're splitting with a couple other guys, and all you're trying to do is just pay your bills. Making a good living is being able to support a family, pay for insurance, be able to pay for your kid to play t-ball and have private lessons, being able to put retirement away. That's a good, that's making a, a good living to make a good living on the production side of the outdoor industry today. In my opinion, there's really only two ways to do it. Either one, you have to get hired on by a company full-time as John Brown had done over the years, or you have to start a company, a production company. You have to hire a bunch of people to work for you and you have to take on show in bulk and just turn a bunch of shows over as fast as you can, as many as you can, with the help of people you hire. But in that case, you might make a, a good living that way, but you're never going to be turning over like a high-end product. And that's kind of what I think I've seen today. I didn't want to be a part of that. So I left the outdoor industry and I went and chased the commercial world. And I make great money there because in the commercial world, the pricing is a lot different and video production is valued a lot different. Um, I said earlier that no one has ever asked me in the commercial world ever, not once, if I could bring a red to a shoot, only the hunting industry has ever asked me that. So I've seen like the difference in the commercial space, which is why I left. But I just personally feel like today, if you're going to make a good living, you either got to network your way in and get hired by a company, a large company that trusts you, as in John, John Brown's case, because he's got a great background. He's a He's a reliable person that you could hire and pay, or you have to start do the churn and burn and, and, and start a production company, hire a bunch of employees and churn out as many products as you can, as fast as you can. I think that's really, in my opinion, the only way that you can do it. The only two ways. Yeah. You know, the, uh, you know, the other side of thing on when it comes to running a business is that uh, you've got to be competitive. Mm -hmm. But what I'm seeing in the outdoor industry now is that they're, they're, they're cutting people to the bone on pricing so much. So, that when you're competitive, you have to go below them to get the work. But then what you end up doing is you end up hurting the industry as a whole by doing that. You basically hammer everybody around you trying to trying to do this to take less money. And I see that in a bunch of different industries other than, you know, any kind of photography industry or the real estate industry um, or camera work is that you, you got there's your time is worth a certain amount per hour. And so if you're going to cut rate pricing based on how much your gear costs, I mean, you might as well be working for $15 an hour at Chick-fil-A and you're not paying a dime for gear. If you're going to charge $200 for your day of filming, because you're not paying for anything to go do that job for Chick-fil-A. 
And so this is where it does pay sometimes to go be an employee because then the person that owns a company does take the risk with all the equipment and, and all the pricing. And so that's a great model. And plus you get benefits. And that's one thing I've never had uh, with owning a company is that I had to pay for my benefits and I had to pay yeah, for all here. the equipment. I took all the risk. Um, but to do that, you should, you should get paid for that mm -hmm. effort of having that gear. And that's where I'm seeing that things are taking a downfall today is that not only are you expected to do the same job as the employer, but now you're buying it too and you're making less money and you're taking all the risk by taking it in the field in terrible elements that can ruin your equipment or crash a drone or get dust in a lens. And next thing you know, you don't have a camera to go for your next shoot and you're dead in the water. And you, you mentioned so. that uh, you mentioned that churn and burn. And this, there's a guy that is here in town, younger guy, great example of that. <laughs> this guy is shooting everything. I mean, look, man, every day he posts on social media. He's at a high school shooting a basketball game. You know, that night, that morning, he shot a, a commercial for somebody. Then he did the real estate thing. He charges nothing. I mean, it's a it's a pittance, but he is doing such a volume of work that he's probably making money doing it. And like Jason said, too, though, he's burning it at both ends of the candle. And that's one of those things that'll catch you. It'll mm -hmm. it'll catch up with you after a while. I mean, but uh, I thought when you said churn and burn that that came to my mind in terms of can you still make a living doing this? Yeah. But man, it's, it's just how much can you do in a 24 hour period? This guy's, you know, Friday night, he does a high school football game. Then he goes back. He edits that thing all night, Friday night, Saturday morning. Boom. He uploads it, you know, and then he's off to, you know, a college game or something like that. So there's a, uh, I, look, I admire people that have that kind of work ethic. Uh, Jason has that kind of work ethic. I mean, we would be in the field together. And like he said, you know, 15, 16 hour days, uh, we would get back. I would go to bed. I would wake up at one or two o'clock in the morning to go to the bathroom. Jason Miller is still sitting at the table. <laughs> He's still downloading video and doing these things and looking at angles and making sure the audio is right and all of that. So yeah, you can churn and you can churn and burn and, and, and still make a living if you're in a market that has that kind of, you know, now from the hunting standpoint, all bets are off, you know, as, as, as far as I'm concerned at this point in time. So yeah, I think I got to a point. So personally for me, I didn't want to turn and burn. I mean, I knew I was going to have kids. I have kids now and I don't want to be doing that. I want to be off at five when I can, if I'm home and not on a shoot, obviously. I want to be off at five hanging out with my son, man. Like I don't want to miss out on that. And also when you turn and burn, and I don't know what this guy you're talking about, I don't know what his videos look like, but I feel like when you turn and burn, there's no way you can put an emphasis on the quality of your imagery, the quality of your audio, the quality of your lighting, the quality of your story. All of that has to take a hit. I'm not interested in any of that. I want to produce the best quality content that I can, and I want to get paid for that. And I just came to the realization that 
there are some markets that support that model and some that don't. And I unfortunately don't think the hunting industry today is as much of a market that supports that anymore. And that's why I changed and chased the commercial world because that is still valued there. But in the hunting industry, I think you either turn and burn or or you get hired on by somebody and work full time for them. Yeah, you know, the, the great thing about being in production is that there's always going to be a need for a photographer, for a videographer, for an editor, mm-hmm. for a colorist, for a musician. Um, there's always aspects in this business that you can find work outside of the hunting industry. Yeah. Um, and as Josh has said, that you can find work that pays better for better quality in other industries. Um, you know, for, for where I think where I'm at now is that, man, it's, it's been a good run. You know, I've traveled the world and I've got this, I've got so many stories and so many experiences filming wildlife that, that's exactly what I want to do. Um, you know, I don't have to see something die anymore. I'm not mad at things anymore to where, you know, every time I go out in the field to film, do I need to see a turkey get shot or, or something like that? I don't have to. You know, I'm, I'm happy with having a camera, but I do still want to be in the field. And so, you know, I, I've been looking at more opportunities like Nat Geo to where you're just filming wildlife and, and discovery and stuff like that, or, or the real estate market that, you know, you don't have that pressure behind your back to produce with such a crew, with such an expense um, to where it's a grind and it's stressful when somebody doesn't want to do a cutaway. And so, there's other ways to make them make money. I just, I feel like Josh that, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be that guy that produces that car commercial that everybody makes fun of, you know, mm-hmm. it just, I, I can't do that because you know, that guy's probably not getting paid 250, 500 bucks for the shoot and the, edit. plus it's not what you want to be and known so, for, right? You want to take no, pride in your work. Not, it's, it's something, you know, my quality and, and my photography is, it stands behind that as well because we're still doing the, the same job when we're just doing photographs it's still the same amount of time in the field but i just don't have ptsd from somebody saying that they don't want to do a cutaway and i just i don't have any more filter anymore if somebody doesn't want to work in the field to do their job um, because i'm there to do my job and what a lot of people don't understand about the hunting industry is that a cameraman in the field I mean, you're, you're looking at 16, 20 hour days because not only are you responsible for getting up before everybody else to film everybody having breakfast, then you got to film everything between the house and the stand and getting set up and then film the animals that are coming in. And by the way, they don't work on a script. They work on what they want to do. So if you end up messing up or if the animal ends up spooking, regardless of uh, why it's spooked, the cameraman's always going to get blamed. Um, and then you got to come back and, and have lunch when everybody goes and, uh, takes a nap, you're recharging batteries and downloading footage and getting ready for the afternoon hunt. And then you're going to cover everything again for the afternoon. Then you're coming back to film dinner. And then when everybody goes to bed, you get to start recharging batteries, downloading footage and getting prepared for the next morning of being the first one up again. And so there's just a lot of work involved. And and I love doing it when I got a crew that likes doing that and loves doing it. And this is why John and I work so well together on the NWTF shows is that we were filming, you know, um, volunteers that didn't 
hunt for a living in front of a camera. And so they would do anything you would ask. And it was a pleasure to film them because you knew that you could get everything you need to get done to tell a great story. And, uh, and just what I started seeing toward the, the tail end of uh, the last couple of years is that people just that are the, the pros don't want to put that kind of work into it. At least some of them didn't. And so, uh, you know, with that being said, where I'm looking at as far as how, where you go, once you hit that ceiling, in the outdoor industry is that you just need to start networking to do other mainstream things and looking at uh, everything that you're capable of doing. And, and that means editing mainstream or mainstream TV or, or photography. But here's one thing that I always say, no matter what you do is it make sure you do business, right? Make sure you, your ethics are in place. And this is where John and I have always worked well together. Is it everything I said I was going to do? I did it. If I end up messing something up, I'll be the first one to stand up and go, man, that's my bad. And how do I make it right? Uh, you know, make sure that you're doing everything right in the field so that the editor understands what they need to do based on what you captured in the field and stay in communication with them. And, and you know, I've always told everybody that I've worked with, my phone's open 24-7, that if you wake up in the middle of the night and, and you've got a misunderstanding or if you've got a question – yeah, you might wake me up, but that's okay. Because if it's bothering you, then that worries me to make sure I want to make sure that uh, business is done right. And so that's been my, you know, the way I do business since the get-go. Um, you know, make sure you also stay on top of your business practices and make sure you're doing the right thing on contracts. Um, so I've seen so many times that you think that somebody's not going to do the right thing on their end because you don't have a contract and it ends up biting you in the, in the foot. And, and uh, I think I struggle with that a little bit. So I, I'm real trusting until, you know, your family ends up taking it uh, the hard way when, when somebody doesn't hold up their end of the bargain for the money that you spent in the field to go capture whatever that they didn't pay. And uh, that's where, you know, I take that pretty hard when I, when I gave them some leniency. So you can't always control what they're going to do on their end, but you can control what you're going to do on your end. And I always want to put my head on the pillow at night to be able to sleep with myself to make sure that I did everything right to, to do things ethically and do things to the best of my ability. John, for uh, anybody who is interested in um, starting a career filming or editing in the outdoor space, hunting or fishing, uh, what advice do you have for them? Um, first, go to go to college. Uh, I suggest they get a degree in marketing uh, and come from that that angle. Uh, I see, and the reason I say that is because over the years, I have known uh, uh, literally hundreds of people that I've I've worked with. And I've watched the ones that were in the marketing side of it continue to flourish. Uh, at NWTF, for example, I saw dozens of those people go on uh, to other careers. and They became vice presidents of marketing at Winchester. I, I got a friend that, that's a VP at Winchester, uh, and I could go on and give several examples of that. But I think having that uh, that marketing knowledge and background will help you know what it is that you need to capture. What is that story that you need to tell? What is the educational side of it? What's it supposed to look like? What's it supposed to sound like? What is it that people want 
want to see. And so when, when I'm approached now by young people, that's, that's the first thing I tell them. And then I tell them, take rudimentary classes on photography. Learn, look, so much of what I learned or so much of what I did with video was actually learned in photography classes, uh, angles, you know, how to focus, uh, learning about iris settings and, and aperture and all, and all this kind of stuff that, that went with it. And so I always say, look, start with the most basic elementary part of it, photography, the original great storytelling, you know, modern storytelling method was photography after, you know, originally we wrote on cave walls and then we wrote on paper and we told stories and then photography became that way of telling and eventually gave way to video. So you mentioned storytelling, you know, and writing. Writing is an important part of that to me. I don't think that you can tell stories if you can't write a story. You've got to be able to sit down, write a story and then be able to convey that to the screen. So, yeah, I, I just tell them, look. Be sure you get it. If you can get a degree, look, be real honest with yourself about what your expectations are. Are you truly expecting to be able to hunt? Is Do you see yourself in a situation where you're going to, you know, pull the trigger? Jason and I, for example, we were in this business 20 plus years before either one of us got in a position where we could go out and do that where I would hunt and he would film or he would hunt and I would film. It was 20 years before we were able to do that. And so be realistic with yourself about what it is that you want to do. What do you want to see? What do you want to accomplish? For me, again, it was born out of telling stories. And then it became I want it to I want it to have a certain measure of respect from my mentors. I wanted those guys, those gatekeepers, the Chuck Jones and the Ron Jolly and uh, the guys like that, Will Primos, guys that I eventually became friends with and worked with. I wanted their respect. So that was a big part of it for me. And of course, I wanted the financial stability to be able to you know, do the things that I wanted to do, raise my children, like you said, some of the T-ball lessons or, or, or whatever that is. So marketing, learn the basics. And then because, again, I don't believe that outdoor television is a viable way of making a good living anymore. I would say your chances of doing that are probably about as good as signing a recording contract now and maybe being the next Luke Bryan, maybe. I mean, look, you know, one of the things that's most overlooked in this business is that people have this, they believe that everybody's making all this money mm -hmm. when in fact, there's probably only about 10 people yep, about 10. in the outdoor industry that are <clears throat> making money. Michael Waddell, Ted Nugent, Lee and Tiffany, maybe the look, uh, uh, maybe the Kiskies, the Drurys, you know, it's it's just such a small pool, finite pool of people who truly make a living doing this. And so, uh, just you know, one of the last things that I'll say on it is, I knew 
from the day I got into it and the truth, my trajectory began to go up career wise that I had come along at the right time. If I had come along five years before or five years later, I wouldn't have been able to get into this business the way I did. I was so fortunate and so blessed that I was at the age that I was at a time when outdoor television began to go up and there were, uh, there was means of doing it and you were paid to do it and you were compensated well for your time and learning to do these things. And so I tell young people today, after I give them that initial advice about marketing and going to school, I always put this caveat on it. And that is, I, I want you to understand how lucky and how, and I get emotional about this, how fortunate and how blessed I was to be born when I was and to enter this business when I did and be surrounded by people who truly cared about me and wanted uh, to see me succeed and cared about the well-being of my family and my children. I can still remember introducing my first child to Will and David Hale and Harold Knight and them holding that child. And they took, it was, it was almost like they took ownership in me at that point. And they were going to take care of me as long as I did what Jason said, as long as I was on time and I busted my rear end and I did what I said I was going to do. They were there. And I'm not sure those people really exist in this business anymore today. And I hate to end on that that note, but that's that's kind of where I am. That's good stuff, man. You almost made me tear up there. <laughs> I feel like I can relate to that. Jason, what about you? What advice do you have? You know, uh, doing this full time, there's peaks and valleys. Um, you've got to go into it knowing that that show's not going to be forever unless you get lucky and get somebody like Lee and Tiffany. It's just not going to be. There's, there's just too much expense and too much um too much work involved that after a while, when, when somebody's not making money, they're going to get out of it. And the way I always looked at it is that most shows that you get called, they've got like a three year um, shelf life. You know, the first year everybody's excited. They're okay to pay the money. The next year they're saying, okay, how do we make the money? The third year they realize how much money they're losing and they decide if they're going to keep going. Um, you know, and, I got lucky that, that we were always tied into the top tier shows. And so that helped carry um, you from show to show um, because contracts, when they come up for negotiation, it's all about the money. It's all about how much uh, they're having to spend on production. Um, if they're going to keep going or not. And if they're going to keep going, they're going to figure out how to ways to cut corners. And that may not include you. Um, and, you know, my contracts were, just I feel in their pricing and when they started going way too low um, that's when I had to, to realize that sometimes you had to walk away from a good thing because the money that you're and the time you're putting into a show just um, it wasn't worth the, the price and so and that's a gamble you got to take as a businessman no matter what you're selling and so uh, 
it's it's those it's those valleys in between your shows that's going to bring out your character and it's going to bring out how you're going to survive to get to the next spot now one thing that i always strive to do is that i didn't i wasn't there to beat everybody in competition i was there to prove to myself that i could be the best i could be and so when i was in the field no matter you know if it was learning how to get use a tripod so the, the camera didn't shake when I was filming wildlife or making sure I had it in focus or the right exposure um, or the perfect picture. Um, my quality, I knew had to be at a certain level. And so I always rode myself hard. So anybody that's going to do this, don't, don't treat this as a competition that you've got to kill your competition to get to where you want to be. Prove to people what you're worth by showing examples of your, work that justify your worth and so uh, your work ethic and what you put into it and who you are uh, ethically uh, will get you further in life than trying to kill your competition in my opinion so um, stay dedicated do your research um, talk to people that that do this for a living and and are successful but also talk to you know everybody because i learned um you know, I've got stories from people that had nothing to do with the industry that helped me learn something and how to do business better. And, and uh, like John said, it could have been in marketing. Uh, you know, it could have been uh, somebody that had just nothing to do with what you're doing that taught you a lesson, how to be a better person and a better uh, businessman. So, um, you know, looking back, it's been a great ride. It really has been. Um, you know, we're, we're still doing production. It's not... Uh, um, hardly any of it anymore is, is doing the outdoor TV production. But, you know, when I'm in the field doing real estate properties or anything like that, you know, I'm at peace with myself knowing that I've accomplished everything I wanted to. And, and that's where I want to see anybody that does a business is that, um, you know, be happy with what you do and chase it as a passion. Don't chase it for a paycheck because uh, money comes and goes but being happy is what truly gives your peace in life. And so when you've got a good family that supports you and you're happy as a person, um, you've accomplished everything in, in life, in my opinion. Yeah, I think my piece of advice would be to never stop learning. So for me, I didn't come into it at the same time you guys did. I came in about 12, 15 years ago, and I hit it at a time when the industry was on its way down. And I made I made money at it. I did well at it. But I think what set me up for success was I never stopped learning. And so I pushed myself and pushed myself beyond what I think people cared about in the outdoor industry. Like people and a lot of shows I watch today, like the lighting is just freaking awful because nobody wants to take the time to learn about lights, for example. And gosh, I must have twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars just in lighting gear in my office right now because of how much I care about lights. And I think that by for me, my my perspective is to never stop learning. And I wanted to learn how to do things that I knew people maybe didn't care about in the outdoor industry, but I knew if it made my me better and more experienced and gave me more knowledge that it would only set me up for success in the long run. And unfortunately for me, that success ended up having to be outside the outdoor industry because I learned, again, as I got in, the industry was on its way down. And if I wanted to support my family, it wasn't going to be chasing outdoor shows that are having $10,000 sponsors today. Um, but because I never stopped learning, I was able to put myself in a position where 
I, I, I got in the outdoor industry. I, I experienced it. I lived it. I got to travel. I had my experience. I, and I, and I'm totally blessed to have had that, but I'm now in a position and have been in a position in the last eight or nine years where I've been able to continue working in video, but in the commercial world. And that's only because I kept learning and I put myself in a position to be able to go into different industries. And so my advice would be is if you want to get in the outdoor industry today, like manage your expectations. Like John said, don't think you're going to just get in it and start being in front of the camera and start your own hunting show. Most people who come into it with that thought process do not make it. So you got to manage your expectations and always keep learning because if you always keep learning, even if you don't stay in the outdoor industry, you'll set yourself up for success in the future. Well, any I final thoughts? That. Any final thoughts? Any final words you guys want to leave on this podcast about can you still make a good living in the outdoor industry? Man, I would I would love to tell you, uh, you know, one lesson I learned is that uh, you don't have to have every bell and whistle and gear to go out there and be successful. Um, you're going to learn quick that there's only X amount of hours in a day to use all that gear. And what you end up doing is you end up traveling with a bunch of equipment that you're paying for that uh, you don't get to use. And so, you know, get a really uh, a decent camera set up, good audio set up, a good lighting package to carry with you, a great tripod. Great uh, tripod's a that, must, man. All that plays together. One affects the other. It's just like doing still mm -hmm. photography. If you change your frame rate, you better be changing your ISO that's going to complement that. And it's the same way with lighting and, and video work and audio um, and your tripod. Um, and so, in my opinion, if you have that that good that good setup right there, and then and then add a drone to what you do, make sure you get 107 certified so that you stay legal. Um, but I think that package right there will do everything you need to do professionally to get you where where you need to go without spending $250,000 on everything you need. Any last thoughts, John? Evolve or die. That's uh, about it, man. It, it it's a it's like we talked about it is an ever-changing business. And, and uh, when I took the job at NWTF in uh, 99, I was hired by a gentleman who was uh, probably 50 years old at the time. And we did not really understand one another. He didn't understand <laughs> my editing style or shooting style and vice versa. And I remember telling myself, when I get to that age, I will step away. Uh, and so I had gotten to the point to exactly like you were saying, you, you have to keep learning and I had just reached a point where I, I really didn't want to put that much into it anymore to, to keep learning how to do those things. And so I became the dinosaur. And if you don't want to become the dinosaur, you need to evolve and learn these things. And and the other thing real quickly is you, you simply these days and, and Jason will tell you when we got into the business, there were guys that were shooters and there were editors. Mm -hmm. But there were very few guys that were shooters and editors. But when nonlinear editing came along, then you began to see a lot of people that did both. Well, these days, 
you're not just expected to be the shooter and the editor. You're supposed to know how to do the after effects. You're supposed to know how to do all the graphic design. You're supposed to know how to do a podcast. You're supposed to know how to shoot 3000 still photos when you're on the job. So the amount of, of things that you're responsible for now far, far outweighs what it was when my first 10 years or so in the business or 15 years. So yeah, just, man, try to absorb and, and learn to do everything that you can so that when a customer or client says, can you do before they even get finished? You go, yes, I can. I think you hit on a nerve though for me and it just, oh, it just frustrates me. You talk about how today people are expected to shoot, edit, know how to do graphics, all that. But you're expected to know how to do that for four or $500 a day or for like yeah. editing on what, like a $3,000 budget for editing a full show? Like it just kills me that your ex, those are the expectations today. I feel like for me, that is the problem with, with, with it today is that the expectations are here and the budgets have dropped to way down here. And that is why I think it's so hard to make a good living in this industry today. You hit a nerve with me there because it just bothers me. And that's where you have to learn how to walk away from things because you yeah. and I both, both know that, you know, if, if people want to pay $2,000 to edit a show and it's going to take you a week to 10 days to do that, unless you sacrifice quality, then it's not worth doing that project. Um, you know, you can look at it two ways. Either you can, you can work hard or you can work smart. So that's where um, I think it's led to this conversation that, um, you know, the three of us had, had to revalue that map that the money's not there for us to start looking in other directions to bring in money for the family. And so that's what I look at when I hear the day rates now and the editing rates. And um, to me, it's just, it's not, it's not worth the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, so to speak. I mean, can you imagine today in today's market, not only editing a show for like three grand or 2,500 or whatever it is, but you're supposed to have, that includes the graphics packages and color grading all. I mean, come on, dude, like, if, if I'm gonna if my if I'm gonna pay my I have an editor who works for me now if I'm gonna pay my editor to edit a show for three thousand dollars you're gonna get like two days out of that edit so he's gonna fly through it and you're gonna get what you get that's just kind of my thought on it but John had a nerve for me and that's where things are <laughs> yeah yeah that's true that's where things are and that's what we've seen where they come to you and so that's the yeah. frustrating part about having all that equipment. Well, guys, I appreciate you hopping on the podcast for me. I think for me and Jason, we've just, man, we've had probably a million conversations over the past several years about how things have changed, how expectations have increased and budget has come down and just how like the industry has changed. And you either have to evolve, as John said, or you have to die and find another another way around it. And I think that's a that's a hard that's like a hard thing, I think, for some people to, to understand when they're getting started because they have big dreams of having their own TV show or working full time and traveling the world. And, but it's, I think it's, it's still possible, but you just have to change your mindset today, I think. Um, but I appreciate you guys hopping on the podcast today. And um, Jason, where, where can people find your work? Oh, Raven6studios.com. Um, Raven6 will always be around. Um, I'm not going anywhere. Um, you know, I'm just evolving into other markets. And so uh, between Raven6Studios.com or, or uh, looking at the real estate side of things on uh, National Land Realty with Jason Miller, um, that's where I am now with that, um, with that company. And so 
Um, but I'm just doing that, um, you know, with bringing outdoor TV production to the field to sell real estate. And so, um, yeah, Raven Six isn't going anywhere anytime soon. John, I know that you say you're retired now, but if uh, if people want to learn more about you or what you've done in the past, like where can they find out information for you? Well, uh, I would assume you could go to nwtf.org and probably pull up uh, a lot of the old episodes that Jason and I did together. Uh, I write primarily now for a magazine called Louisiana Sportsman. I do that. And I'm dabbling in some land management. I have uh, three pieces of property that I'm managing for people here in uh, northeast Louisiana and thinking about uh, going bigger on that. I've had a lot of people ask about it. I've, I've always been very passionate about the land and uh, enjoy working on the on on the land. And so uh, that's probably the direction that I'm I'm uh, heading in. I don't <laughs> I, I honestly one of the things that I wish I would have done a better job of was keeping up with those old shows, you know, masters that we did over the years and, and having a record of them and, and getting them transferred to digital. But, uh, 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 just my, for my kids, they grew up around it. And now my grandchildren, I have a granddaughter now. So, uh, just to be able to show something, uh, a, a, a you know what you did uh that sure and i think for me yeah i think for me personally though the, the greatest thing is that looking back i feel like i helped educate a generation about hunting and turkey hunting and turkey conservation in particular and the importance of conservation uh so that's that, that's good enough for me at the end of the day to to know that that I had a small, uh, played a small part in that. So that's good awesome, times, brother. Lots well, of great trips to feel with you, man. That's one thing I love about working <laughs> with good people is that, you know, when looking back on, on things, when things don't always don't work out with certain clients, you kind of harbor on that for a long time. But I tell you what, my, I always go to the good times. And, and John and I had lots of those in the field and even with Josh on the phone spending, you know, hours and hours and hours talking about new lenses and camera gear and editing equipment and all that. So, you know, Josh is my, my, my go-to on, on who keeps up with the latest and greatest gear in the field. And so uh, that's what I love surrounding myself with are people that are passionate about what they do and, and having good times and, and great memories. And I have that with both these guys. Well, I appreciate you guys for hopping on the podcast today. And uh, I want to thank everyone who listened in today and made it all the way to the end of this episode. If you have not yet subscribed to the Filming with Josh podcast, I'd love for you to do that. You can also uh, check out our work at rusticriver.media. And don't forget to join the Filming with Josh Facebook group where you can learn more about video. We'll see you all there. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.